Our guest today is Harvard Business School professor Linda Hill. She's the faculty chair of the Leadership Initiative at HBS and has chaired numerous executive education programs. She is the co-author of numerous books and articles on leadership, including her very latest, Collective Genius, and we're going to discuss that today. To sum it up, Professor Hill knows a lot more about leadership than we could ever cover in a podcast. Uh, so thank you for being with us today. It's my pleasure. And I should mention you uh, you co-authored this book with, uh, with three other people, Greg Brandau, Emily Trulove, and Kent Lineback. What prompted you to, to write the book? So a few years back, I began to read all about how we needed to have leaders who knew how to build organizations that could innovate. So like a good professor, I went to the library, tried to find research on this. Mm-hmm. Turns out that the people who study innovation are quite separate from the people who study leadership. And indeed, when I began to think about what we should be doing in our leadership courses, I needed to begin to do my own research and look at other research that might help us understand the connection between leadership and innovation. Conventional wisdom would say that the leaders who do the best job at, uh, at creating innovation within their organizations are visionaries themselves, people like Steve Jobs and, I don't know, maybe Mark Zuckerberg, others like that who are just held up as these pantheons of innovation. But you would say that's not necessarily so. I think the thing that we saw in our research, and again, I wasn't sure what we were going to find, is that if you are in a visionary, yes, indeed, maybe you can drive a company and maybe you can drive a lot of innovation. But fundamentally, if you want to build an organization that's capable of innovating time and again, you don't simply want to rely on one individual. So one of the first companies that I was happy to be able to study to look at my research was Pixar, one of Steve Jobs' companies. But when I went to Pixar, and as you know, one of my co-authors ended up being an executive who worked there. Mm -hmm. When I went to Pixar, one of the things that I saw is that many of the leaders there, or people in leadership positions, were indeed visionaries. But they didn't see their role or their function as being a visionary when it came to being about leadership. What they described to me was, you know what, if you really want to innovate, if you think about yourself as being the visionary, then you're not going to be so innovative. My role is to create an organization in which people are willing and able to do innovative problem solving time and again. Mm -hmm. So that different mindset got them to focus on a different set of activities. I was talking to one of the people who works in HCL Technologies, one of the companies I studied. Yes, in, in the book. And I was talking to a young person who only graduated a year ago, and he proceeded to talk with me about how we believe in everyday innovation. Let's face it, we're an outsourcing business, so it's not like we're going to get to work on the next Watson or whatever. I'm using his language. But every day I should be able to come up with a new idea. So some of these ideas are clearly incremental. So how did they do that, though? Because this wasn't the culture at HCL. No, you know, it was initially, of course, because it was a pioneering company. HCL was, in fact, if you want to look at it, some people would say it was the company that first created the industry, the computer industry, when IBM left because you know they, India didn't have mm-hmm. uh, laws that made them feel comfortable with their IP, HCL was the first company that got created. When Vinique came in, it was number five. So here you have these visionary founders, and it, you know they lost their position. They're now mm-hmm. number five. They bring in this young person to be the CEO, Vinique Nair. He was in his early 40s, which would India's very young for a CEO. Right. And he said, you know what, we got to turn this whole thing on its head. This is not about me. I don't have the answers. I not. I need to create this organization where we have the force of one, and we need to have everybody understand that everyone can be do extraordinary things, and they all need to be prepared to indeed come up with those new ideas. And so I really want to emphasize it's not simply about motivation. There are truly capabilities you have to build mm-hmm. in the organization so that people are actually able to get this stuff done. Can you talk a little bit about how he yeah, did that? Well, what Vinit did is he really worked on three kinds of capabilities, which are very difficult in any organization, and maybe particularly in India, with its pretty hierarchical hierarchical notion and how you how juniors should treat seniors. Right. But 
So the first one is creative abrasion. If you really want to have an innovative organization, you need to be able to let to create a marketplace of ideas where there are really com competition for those ideas. So you really want to create an organization where people, you have a fair amount of diversity and you have a fair amount of conflict. Mm -hmm. So the capability you need to build is that the organization needs to be able to have true debates about ideas, yeah. which means candor. And how many times do we see candor? How often do we see candor in organizations? Not as much as we need. So those ideas can come out. You're allowed to voice them. And so this young person today said to me, you know, I didn't know I was really supposed to argue with my bosses. It's still hard for me to believe right. that I'm allowed to argue and bring my ideas up, right? Mm -hmm. So that idea that you would argue with your bosses, or, and indeed, you de how do you have a healthy debate? Mm -hmm. And really, by, through that debate and discourse, create a, a really robust marketplace of yeah. ideas. The second one is creative agility, which is how do we actually test those ideas quickly? Test them, do experiments, get the feedback make the adjustments, very much what we know about design thinking and how you sort of do things that way. These are organizations that understand, since you don't really know the answer because yeah. it's innovative, you kind of act and learn your way to and that failure future. And failure is okay. Failure is okay. Reasonable failures, not so many times. But that's a piece of the puzzle. So what these organizations sort of say is we don't do pilots, do we do experiments? Because a pilot means you failed. Someone didn't get it right. It was supposed mm -hmm. to succeed. We do experiments. We learn quickly. We make adjustments. We actually listen to the feedback. It can do that. Mm -hmm. Then the last capability is creative resolution, which is also a very tricky one. So this is the capacity to make decisions so that you actually can bring together opposable ideas. And the only thing that will allow you to be able to do that, frankly, is if, you're not, if you don't compromise too quickly, which happens a lot in organizations. I, it's just too much. Let's just, let's just finish, right? right? Mm -hmm. Usually, again, you've got to have that abrasion. You've got to work this stuff through. Compromise doesn't lead to most innovations mm -hmm. that we see, not at all, right? Right. And that's partly, partly why we see these visionaries who are so persistent that can get that first business created. The second part of that, though, is you don't want to have any group dominate because that's the other thing that happens in most organizations when you look at how they make decisions. It's mm -hmm. pretty clear who's supposed to dominate. Either hierarchy determines who dominates or expertise even. But in these organizations, just because you're, quote, the expert doesn't mean that somebody else might have a better idea, a newer idea, because in part, if you're the expert, you're very tied to the status quo. Right. You may be the least likely person to be able to reframe things. The pentagram example to me was a fascinating one. Oh, yes. And for people who don't know what pentagram is, I, I love it because it sounds like a, you know, a, a, a secret of society of some sort. Just describe pentagram and, and how they're set up because uh, I think it really plays off what you were just talking well, about. Well, pentagram is, uh, is a, a design firm. So it's a partnership that has lasted longer than most, particularly mm -hmm. a global partnership. And there are designers from all the different design um, fields, from architecture to graphic design, et cetera. And they came together because they wanted to have a place where they could do the very, very best work. So to become a partner of Pentagram, you already have to be a rock star. All the partners have to agree on you being there because you need to be a part of their community, so they'll be willing to work with you. And you have to live by certain rules. Equality and generosity are the two rules that they talk about. Equality means that we all get paid the same thing with some adjustment you know, based on where you live. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing because they're all really good. Yeah. Not, you know, these are people who are very, very top at the top of their fields. And that we're generous. And so there's no junior, senior partner. We're all, once you're a partner, you're a partner. Now, there's a whole process that's very complicated to become a partner, very carefully selected who's in this community. So you feel like these are your peers. Mm -hmm. But they all see it is that postgraduate education they need to keep to keep the edge, to keep that spark. So one of the things, one of their rituals that happens twice a year is that a partner has to present his or her work. 
And as you know, one of the people we write about, Kit, who actually designed the cover of our book. Listeners can't see it, but it's awesome. We we were, yes, we were very lucky. But anyway, you know, what he described is what they all have to do is to present their work. And he talks about how he's sweating. This rock star has won every award, has things, you know, has exhibits in MoMA, et cetera, when he presents to his colleagues to get their critique of his work. And he puts himself through that because he wants to be pushed to that next level. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think Pentagram brings up and is this whole idea that many people say to me, well, you know, there are too many cooks in the kitchen. If you have too many geniuses, you're going to have a problem. You only, you only want a few because, how, you know, if you have a lot of them, how, the, how do they deal with their egos, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And so what you see in these situations is these are people who deeply get, you know what? I work better when I'm working with other people at the top of their game. I'm willing because I'm a part of a community where, among other things, we have a shared sense of purpose. Within many organizations, people aren't incentivized in a way that promotes collaboration. So how do you overcome the hurdle of what's in it for me? One of the things that these organizations all understand is, again, we're only human and you need to keep things on, on one level to a human scale. So if we even look at the Volkswagen example, you may recall in there, one of the things that Luca did when he first got there was to have these events were people who never really met each other before. Mm-hmm. And like it was worth the investment to bring the whole global marketing group together and to have them work. They actually worked in Frank Gehry's building, a fabulous building that's right next to Brandenburg Gate. These, these people are very visionary and very symbolic. He's a marketeer, so right. he would know that. They didn't sit. They were standing most of the time, really thought about the way the space should be organized to allow for them to break some of their patterns of how they interacted and to do strategic thinking, you know, standing in different groups with loud rock music, et cetera. I think, uh, you know, his German colleagues were a little bit uh, wondering what was happening here (laughs) for a bit. But it was really a part of let's – it's a new time. We need to interact in new ways and using whatever I can to help – Shake it up, knowing that we're gonna. We, there's lots more to follow here, but the first part is eye to eye, human contact, me knowing you, because you have to trust me deeply if you're going to take risks, give you know, really argue with me, mm-hmm. and do all of that. We need to know each other. So one final question for yes. you: the last part of the book is a glimpse into the future. Yes. What does it look like? Going back to what I said about Pixar, it took them 20 years to develop a computer-generated full-length movie. A lot of business people are telling us is the, the market doesn't give you that time anymore. And they're really having to rely, like on biotech, et cetera, a lot on universities mm-hmm. and private-public partnerships. Where can this basic research be done? So we thought it was important to actually look at private-public partnerships because we think that that is going to be important to competitiveness for most countries nowadays. A lot of the people we studied actually were involved in open innovation experiments, but we wanted to make sure we looked at some open innovation situations because that is where it's going because, you know, you can't do it. You don't have all the capacity inside your single organization, so you're going to have to partner with others. So that, we think, is the future, that it's not just about leading innovation in your own organization, but actually building this sense of community across diverse organizations. Well, the first step should be to go out and buy Collective Genius, I think. Oh, you're so kind. Published on Harvard Business Review. Professor Linda Hill, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure.